Hi there. Welcome to Meta Level Love. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I haven't committed myself to having a new episode on a weekly basis, which personally has been pretty helpful because since I published the first episode, my, how things have changed. Asma Nasami summed it up pretty well in a tweet saying, I personally think it's really cool how we all went from learning how to make banana bread to learning how to abolish the police in a matter of weeks. With all that revolution going on, I didn't have time or energy to write much, and giving myself the space to not rush another episode felt appropriate. Being patient enough with my process to tend to whatever emerges as a priority at any given moment, that's a lesson I've gotten much better at accepting. So rather than just diving in and writing and recording anything, I spent a good amount of time thinking a lot about how to take the next step. Maybe you can relate. I mean, if you've been paying attention, you're also feeling something about these past few weeks, right? The context has been made clear, the conditions are ripe, and I'm feeling some pressure to make sure my next thing, whatever I do, it's the right thing. So what should I do? What comes next? I have no choice but to do something, and this is obviously the time to just get into it, to actually do the thing, not just talk about it, but really actually do it. So I am referring to making episode two of this podcast, but not just that. Everything is happening in a much broader context. Can you relate? Are you feeling similarly? As usual, there are many things I want to talk about, and they all feel important and necessary. Right now, especially right now, everything feels urgent, and that has created a lot of tension in me. As a result, I've been channeling the voice of my therapist. When I see her, after several major things have happened since our last session, all of which are worth discussing, but we only have 50 minutes, she often encourages me to by saying, go wherever you feel has the most energy. So in saying this, I don't think it denies the significance of the other things. I understand it to be a practice of remaining present with and tending to that which feels like it needs the most attention. So I get to listen to my body and pay attention to how it guides me, which is always a worthwhile practice. And I also understand that nothing gets solved within an hour of a single session. Of course, there's always more. And the assumption is that we could get to those other things at another time in another session. And maybe we will, maybe we won't. Or better yet, therapy isn't only about doing healing work during a session with a counselor. After all, if we could only ever do work that supports our healing and therapy, we would not make a lot of progress. Practically speaking, there is just not enough time. And also, not everybody has a therapist, let alone a good one. So one of the most important things that I believe about making access available to good therapy is that it can help us develop skills and practices to use in our daily lives. Therapy helps me become more equipped to do most of my reflecting and my feeling that healing work on my own, too. In therapy, most of the time, once I focus on that which has the most energy, whatever else I could have talked about rarely comes back up in the same way during a follow-up session. What is far more likely is that those other issues that were bothersome before come back around again and again and again in another form, at another time, and I can tend to them then. It may look different on the surface, but if we peel back the layers, it's really just the same old thing. And this is the nature of trauma and healing. Whatever needs to be addressed but hasn't been adequately dealt with will tend to keep showing up. If there's one thing to bet on, it's that the most challenging patterns we've learned and adopted to get through our lives are likely not going anywhere fast. But I also think there might be another lesson to glean from what my counselor's encouragement has taught me, that if I go with what has the most energy, if I spend time with what needs my attention right now, it might actually do something with how I relate to all the other things that have been troubling me too. Maybe it's all related. Maybe if I tend to this one thing, if I do really meaningful work with what is pulling on me right now, this will actually do something with how I relate to all those other issues as well. 
maybe my healing in any moment regarding any one thing is a worthy project because my healing is connected to every other thing. Doing work in one area is meaningful, and even that can shift how I experience and connect with other things that aren't exactly or explicitly getting attention right this second. So right now, as I sit to record the second episode, we've experienced weeks of protests and demonstrations demanding justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, David McAtee, Ahmaud Arbery and Nina Pop. These are names of people, black people and black trans people who have been killed by police or murdered from the violence of those who have hate in their bodies, minds, and hearts towards people who are black or transgender. And in the time that I was working to write this script, there have been even more names. Dominique Fells, Rhea Milton were two black trans women who were brutally murdered within a day of each other. And in the face of all of this, I have experienced that sense of overwhelming heaviness when The rage and the grief just becomes too much. And I was feeling this before, but it has felt increasingly so day after day as more stories emerge and more stories occur of violence and death. So in response, my feelings, my urge that I've had brewing inside of me are very strong. And I want to go off about whiteness. I want to talk about whiteness and white supremacy. I want to unpack white privilege in ways that are not often discussed in conversations about privilege. And I want to talk about how and why white people are so often incapable and unwilling to see themselves the way people of color see them. I want to talk about the inversion of reality that creates white narratives about the world and the deadly epistemic crisis with respect to knowledge and truth that this then seeds. I want to talk about the ways in which white people think they know so much about the world and people of color, even though they are not let in on most of it. And I also want to talk about how people of color can manifest aspects of whiteness too. And how I, as a biracial Asian American woman with a lot of white in my personal background and experience, came to learn and understand these things about myself. And yet, as badly as I want to talk about all of those things, which is clearly, I hopefully you can tell, quite a lot, something else is pulling on me even more. Where I feel the most energy is in understanding that all that rage and all the grief and confusion and frustration that we might be feeling, all of that needs to be rooted in something. So for this episode, I want to share the foundation that provides meaning for me behind all of this work, how I ground myself and my process in a framework of social justice. In case you don't listen to any other episode after this, or if for some unforeseen reason I don't make another one, I want to share with you how I've made sense of the most basic question. Why? Why care? Why do it? Why try? In the first episode, I emphasized that we need to understand more than just the what of social justice. We also need to learn how. But beneath all of that, in order for our work to be meaningful to us, to be compelling enough for us to shift how we live every single day and literally then change the world, I think we must have some sense for why. Why social justice? Why freedom? Why liberation? There are lots of different ways that people can answer this. And as usual, like I am sharing the tools and the the resources that have helped me think about this for myself and my own life in the most helpful of ways. And in order to structure the world and make sense of it, we have to understand what oppression is so that we can identify what it is that we are um, working against and what we are fighting against. And then we have to have some understanding of what liberation is. Um, 
these are not to be just kind of cast off as abstract concepts or words or buzzwords or something. Like there's a meaning behind these words, but if we don't do the work to root ourselves in the meaning of them, then it can so easily feel like we're just floundering and lost and we don't know what it is that we're fighting, what is a good action, what um, we should be working for or how to even like orient ourselves. We need some kind of bearing. So um, I, I have like really, I don't know why I was resistant to this idea or somehow trying to like deny it, but I am inclined to then share as the like most important foundation to help provide some guidance for how and why we should be doing certain things and not others. I, I root myself in existentialism, but specifically in existential ethic. And I can already feel and anticipate some eyes rolling around, oh my gosh, this is so much philosophy, why? But when we think about what we need right now, I do think we have to have some kind of compass. And to think about an ethic, ethics is basically just the set of values that give us some kind of context to be able to determine and judge between actions, that which we could say are good or right or just, and those which are not. So we have to be able to differentiate between the sort of actions or choices and projects that we want to choose, that we want and wish to pursue because it is in alignment with the values that we are seeking and that we wish to embody. This is just a version of an ethic. We could say, you know, it's right or wrong based on other kinds of principles or texts or frameworks that people think. But if we were to say something along the lines of it's wrong to tell a lie, the only way we can make sense of that is to understand why is it wrong to tell a lie, which implicitly then calls to question the end that we are trying to seek. So there are certain means of actions, the what we're doing. But in order to know what we're doing, what we should be doing, we have to understand why we would or would not engage in that action. Back in 2017, I gave one of my favorite lectures ever, and it's so interesting how that came to be. The lecture was on existential ethics and the ethics of ambiguity by Simone de Beauvoir. And this is still, to this day, one of my favorite lectures because it never loses its significance, which I should have anticipated. That shouldn't be a surprise because I also know that after 10 years of teaching classes on feminism and um, race issues and all of these, all of these things that end up feeling like, oh my gosh, my mind is opening. I'm, I'm seeing things differently. And also I'm a little bit overwhelmed because there's just so much. What do we do? Students usually hit a point in the semester when they start to say, like, this is just so much, like, what, why, what is this? And it, there's this, like, you get deep enough where you dig, dig, dig until you need to understand something more bedrock and foundational. So I noticed this pattern happening almost every semester as I was teaching. And at, at some point in time, there was usually, um, like, just this organic break in the lecture or in the discussion where I would realize that the students had gotten to that point where they were just like, what and why? We need more because this is too much. Like, how am I supposed to do this? Um, that I should have just like started building in this lecture, you know, from go. I tried it once. So like, we're going to start here. But the, the, the principled lecture is about understanding what oppression is so that we can get to notions of freedom. I think that when it comes to understanding oppression or doing anti-oppressive work or trying to move beyond our status quo and the conditions and the structures that we currently live in to move somewhere else, we, as we're envisioning this other future and trying to imagine what that could look like, we have to have some kind of framework to inform the, the structures that we wish to build. And for me, um, I think that we have to start with an understanding of oppression. So I will introduce that. So Marilyn Fry is a feminist philosopher whose work I reference um, that a lot of people do. And she wrote this essay called Oppression, which was intended to try to do exactly what I'm saying, put some language behind what oppression is and what it isn't. 
particularly because when we talk about oppression, it's it can become so watered down as a concept or it can even be co-opted so that people who are not oppressed start saying, well, now I'm oppressed. This would be like all the claims for reverse racism, reverse sexism, or like in the pandemic when people say, this is oppression. If you don't let me out of my house and make me wear a mask and I can't get my hair cut, people saying that now they feel like they're oppressed are misusing the term because there's not a clarity around what it means to actually be oppressed. So Marilyn Fry's essay is really helpful because she uses language of oppression as like truly um, pressing or immobilizing. And it's that immobilization that I think really captures the essence of oppression of it. There are constrictions, restrictions, limitations, and barriers that prevent the movement of people in some kind of free and uninhibited way. So she uses this metaphor of a birdcage, which is also not totally new in terms of metaphors of oppression, but the caged bird, for instance, from Maya Angelou, the birdcage um, is a helpful metaphor because it allows Marilyn Fry to explain how oppression is not just a single wire of the birdcage that presents some kind of obstruction. In order to really comprehend the nature of oppression, you have to step back, take more of a macro approach, and see that the wires of the birdcage are all interconnected. And so if there was just one wire, you could say, well, that sure is an obstruction. It's a hindrance. It sucks. Not helpful. It gets in your way, but you can just fly around it to be free. That's not the nature of oppression because oppression is all these wires are connected and it's by virtue of their interconnectedness, the network of power or restrictions um, that m truly immobilize people when it doesn't seem like there would be um, such a, a like comprehensive obstruction to movement. So the birdcage is also a little bit like deceiving to one who might be inside of it or not seeing from the macro lens all the relationships of those different wires as they connect to each other because there's space there. It looks like, well, you could still get out, but in totality, when understood in the relationships of those interlocking forces, even though there are gaps between the wires of the birdcage, it basically is effectively just as inhibiting as, as Marilyn Fry describes it, like concrete walls of a dungeon. So it's only with that macro view of understanding how different structures and systems and policies at multiple levels from inter in, interpersonal, intergroup levels to personal internalized notions of oppression, and then through structural, cultural bases, there are all of these different forces and it's the interlocking of them that creates the experience of oppression. So it's not so much to say like, well, why don't you just pick yourself up from your bootstraps and do such and such? There's one obstacle and then another obstacle and another obstacle, but it's not like hurdles on a, on a running track. It's instead that the obstacles are related so that you literally become immobilized in the sense that you have no out. It becomes a situation more of you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, you're in a catch-22, you can't go anywhere because the options are actually obsolete. So oppression is this, this way of understanding the restrictions that prevent, delimit, and constrict movement for people. Now, I'm talking about movement because I think that that is a really appropriate way to characterize what it means to have a will, to have autonomy, self-determination, um, a choice. And this is, all of these words are characterizations of what we mean by freedom. So freedom is that which is not restrained, restricted. Freedom would be something that is completely antithetical to oppression. So oppression is the precondition that undermines any possible experience or actualization of freedom. So these two are necessarily in tension with one another. 
We cannot have freedom if there is oppression. So freedom is this kind of movement um, of the will or self-determination, autonomous choice. Um, the existentialists will also talk about this in terms of projects. So a, a project is something that we can put our intention behind and we can direct ourselves to some sort of end. So a project becomes that which we pursue, that which we invest our energy into to move us to something different. And there's some kind of like development or expansion or enhancement, like a project produces something. And the projects can be, you know, tangible things. Like if I want to put my energy into recording an album or something, that could be a project. Um, my A project could be community organizing. Um, a project could be doing my own education or study. All of these things require our energy in a directed kind of way. So those become our projects and that is the way in which we express the movement of our freedom through our projects. So, of course, oppression is that which prevents us from being able to actually make progress on our projects. It also, on a more fundamental level, level can mean that we don't even have access to choose our projects. That is something that the existentialists would call um, imminence, where our energy is spent simply in maintaining or surviving our conditions, whereas the projects, the things that we put our energy into that grow and develop and enhance and move towards something else, that is the movement of transcendence. We are able to, through our projects, transcend our current state of being and where we're at um, to do something else. So all of these are just kind of like definitional um, constructs to set the stage for understanding sort of the basic framework of existentialism. We in our human existence as humans, as subjects with freedom, human freedom, not just like the freedom granted by our governments or the freedom that is restricted by our governments. Um, it's more basic than that, that we as humans have an innate kind of freedom and as these subjects that we are, we naturally pursue our projects. It's only when we come up against conflicts or um, obstructions to that that we then experience not having freedom. So the ethics of ambiguity is a really important contribution to understanding the nature of existential frameworks for understanding human um, interactions and efforts, because what becomes very apparent is that as humans, we have this unique quality and character of living organisms to have this freedom of our own movement and our will. We can put ourselves into projects, but our freedom is not going to be um, limited by something like a natural disaster. This is, we could say that, well, that truncates my project, it inhibits my freedom, I can't record my album, this is a terrible example, but I can't record my album if suddenly a hurricane destroys my studio. That is um, a real bummer and a hardship for sure of struggle that really kind of throws a wrench into the whole process, but it's not an example of oppression. It's just a natural kind of phenomenon. Oppression is actually only a byproduct of freedom itself, follow me, in the sense that we as human subjects with our ability to put ourselves into projects can use our freedom, that will that we have, to undermine and truncate or cut off the freedom of others. So oppression is a byproduct of this very ambiguous nature of our human condition, which is that in my freedom, because I have the ability to have a will and a choice and to act on that, I can choose to act on my freedom in a way that interrupts and disrupts your freedom. This is how oppression emerges. It's a byproduct of human freedoms in conflict or not that there's like this antagonistic nature. They don't have to be in conflict, but 
we affect each other. And so if we so choose to utilize our freedom and and manifest our freedom in a way that is through a project of destroying or limiting the freedom of others, then we have chosen a project of oppression as that which we then are able to manifest this, this power that we have in us as existential beings with a human condition predisposed for the freedom to choose and move. So basically, that means that we oppression is a human byproduct that is possible because of our condition as existential subjects with the freedom and the capacity to affect one another. In no way does that mean that it is predetermined or necessary that we have to oppress each other. It's just something that we tend to do. So with this then, now that we have the context set for um, oppression understood as the antithesis of the free movement of our freedom in an existential kind of framework, then we have to come up with some kind of guiding principles for how, how then should we utilize our freedom? To what ends should we direct our freedom and our projects so that our transcendence is that which leads to what? That's not just oppression. So the ethics of ambiguity or an existential ethic presented in this way answers itself with a very simple conclusion, which is that the, the, the goal of freedom is more freedom. Not to delimit freedom, but instead to open up to more freedom. And so if I use my freedom or move my freedom in this kind of project, the end to which I should be pursuing is that which opens up the possibility for more freedom. This is totally opposite then from what oppression does and oppressive actions and systems, because those are the ones that use freedom to cut off freedom, to diminish freedom. But instead, our ethic, what is good, what should be pursued with the desirable qualities of something that we want and should, in terms of almost like an obligation, then pursue our actions that manifest our freedom for the sake of freedom, freedom that opens up more freedom. And there's this beautiful image that I get when I think about this of, um, it's a line that Beauvoir puts into the exist. Uh, the ethics of ambiguity, of this radical unfurling of freedom or a creative unfurling of freedom too. Because in that in that motion of freedom for the sake of opening up more freedom, there is inherently a creative aspect to this. There's the creation of more freedom, which is just amazing. And in that space of freedom that opens up more freedom to be the directionality and the the basis upon which we can judge and evaluate our actions, we then do have a clear path forward for how we should be choosing our actions. What it means is that in our choices, we can evaluate and assess, does this project that I am pursuing and undertaking lead to the creative unfurling of more freedom, or does it undermine and truncate the possibility for freedom, especially in others. I love this framework because it makes it so easy for us to just be able to say, now, it's not a matter of politics, it's not a matter of ideology, but we can dig deep and and really ask ourselves, does this action that I am taking result in more freedom or less freedom? And it's not just for some, but like the freedom overall, freedom for the sake of freedom is this like very broad end that we can be pursuing. It's not going to be clean, obviously. It's in fact very ambiguous, but that is also the nature of our own freedom to tease out those contradictions and the ambiguity to problem solve, to figure out how when we utilize and act with our own will for transcendence in our projects, for the movement of freedom, it's up to us as 
a tool of our freedom to be thinking about what we're doing and assess it. That itself is its own project that one would be worthy to pursue um, because it has already embedded in it the question of does me using my freedom, we're getting very meta, me using my freedom to understand the nature of my freedom as opening up more freedom is itself a worthy project. Maybe that's just like existential philosophy. That's in a nutshell. What I love about this is also the emphasis, like I hinted at before, that an existentialist ethic provides us with something very simple, really, to be able to identify what freedom is and then what liberation is, because liberation is then the free movement of freedom for the sake of more freedom. <laughs> it's the free movement, uninhibited movement of our freedom to choose our projects for our transcendence that produce more freedom and or produce the possibility for more freedom. And so when I think about like happy moments of liberated spaces or little slices of time when liberation feels so tangible because you can feel it, those are the moments when freedom is uninhibited. To be liberated is to be uninhibited. But then to move towards a state of liberation is where that is that is the state of being. And in my view, that state of liberation where freedom opens up to the possibility of more freedom as an inherently creative process centers things like creation and creativity. No longer do we have this um, movement of our freedom in the service of destruction and domination or killing of freedom. It's redirected in a purely creative manner that opens up the possibility for more freedom. And that is, that is a liberated place, a place of liberation. So frequently in conversations about oppression, people will say, well, isn't it just human nature for us to discriminate against each other? Or isn't it human nature for us to dominate each other? That in the, in the history of all of our human existence, there has been this conflict, and it's going to just continue to be the case that some people will be haves and some people will be have-nots. Um, and it's a matter of luck or misfortune if you are somehow born into um, a group that has the power that dominates versus the disempowered group that is dominated. These claims for human condition as a way to excuse oppression as like this historical necessity, it might be a historical fact, but that does not mean that it's a human necessity. So I believe that it is true that in exercising our freedom, we can obviously have some ambiguity in that and conflict because we, the very nature of our existence is that we affect one another. But it's a cop-out to suggest that it's in our human nature to dominate each other. This is a very, um, I don't know, convenient way for those who want to maintain systems of oppression to package human nature as a human condition, because it absolves them of the responsibility to do otherwise. It's also an incredibly non-creative view of the world. So in the maintenance of oppression, these lines of saying, but isn't it human nature for us to do these things? I'm always incredibly skeptical and critical of any argument that does um, sort of a trump card on, yes, but it's human nature. Because I believe that our human condition is that which is of freedom. We have the power to move through the world and to choose our projects. It's only when we are inhibited by the freedom of others that are acted upon us in ways that undermine our own sovereignty and autonomy to be able to pursue our own projects that we encounter situations of oppression. And those choices, I think, could be done otherwise. I, there's some thread of hope 
in there or optimism of that, like, it could be different. And I believe in that. We just have not uh, yet materialized on a global scale, on a historical scale, some kind of way of being that is a liberated state of being. Okay, so at the risk of being too redundant about talking about freedom for the sake of freedom, I want to reiterate and make sure we underscore some really important points about what all of this means for us and why I feel like it's so important. So first, as I hope is clear right now, an existentialist ethic provides both the means and the ends for our actions. The means through which we act is by directing our existential freedom, that thing that we have as living subjects, as human beings, towards projects that serve more freedom. Okay, the means and the ends are freedom for the sake of freedom, and liberation is the free movement of our freedom in that direction. Then what I really think is important about all of this is that it gives a fundamental bedrock meaning for our lives. There are so many different frameworks and traditions that can try to put an answer on what the meaning of life is. And you can have lots of different traditions that will answer that question in different kinds of ways. I come from a sort of existentialist framework, obviously. And so the meaning of life is the movement of our existence. There is very little beyond just our freedom, our choice, our actions, our responsibilities to create meaning for ourselves. So we can use our freedom to create more freedom. And that action can include so many different types of projects. I hope it's abundantly clear and just obvious, even though I maybe haven't said it so explicitly yet, that all of our efforts that move towards social justice, that move towards a collective kind of shared liberation, where our state of being in totality is that of freedom. That is a worthy project for our own freedom to pursue. This means that we can assess all of our actions, all of our projects, all of our purposes, according to a principle of freedom. And really, there need not be a whole lot more elaboration than that. We could. We could go on and on for about 50 minutes in a podcast to talk about all the ways that freedom can manifest in that way. But the most simple takeaway is that when we ask our questions about why should we fill in the blank, no matter what it is that we're doing, we can always say that the meaning that drives our actions or the meaning that we strive to arrive at and actualize through our actions is that which is anti-oppressive in the service of liberation and for the sake of freedom. I think that's such a powerful way to put meaning on our lives. If it's not that, then what else is there? And ultimately, what that also means is that until there is this state of liberation, shared liberation, where all of our existential freedoms are moving towards projects that do not diminish and undermine each other's ability to move and exist in the world through this kind of overcoming of challenges in our development of ourselves through our projects, our transcendence, if we're not there yet, then our projects can, should, must be directed towards that state of collective freedom. After we start talking about existentialism, people might think, oh, geez, here comes Corey, the philosopher, giving us existentialist ethics, thinking that's going to help us, how abstract and useless this is. But don't dismiss existentialism. Because... The thing about freedom that moves in the direction of opening up more freedom 
and having this be our ethic that guides us and being able to determine our actions and assess what is good and what is not helpful for our projects of freedom. This entire framework orients us to a future that is something that is inherently creative and it is something that we can we can produce. So I am going to um, return to one of the most important essays that a lot of people talk about but often don't um, understand if they haven't like really studied it. And so you may be familiar with this phrase, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house by Audre Lorde. This is an essay that um, Lorde delivered in 1979. And it has been kind of one of those cornerstone pieces to be thinking about liberatory frameworks for anti-oppression work insofar as the the key message that people will quote and um, sort of recite as a refrain is that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Put more simply, we cannot just replicate the things that we've been doing and expect something different to come out of that. We have to come up with new tools in order to create something radically new and different. And there is this, I mean, it's, this piece is um, sort of focused on the importance of recognizing our differences instead of trying to build um, a sense of progress on sameness or to say that we're all the same, or even a requirement or expectation that we should be the same. So Audre Lorde is saying, you know, if we do, if we do that, then, and we dismiss or ignore our differences, then we will actually be limiting and undermining the political potential of our more expansive liberatory projects, because we fail to acknowledge that there is strength and creativity and power in our differences. It is the tool of the master to eliminate our differences or to use our differences to divide us and to make us fear one another, uh, to make us compete against one another. And along the lines of our named differences, this is how oppression works. So if we try to ignore that or we uphold the same kinds of divisions on our differences at the basis of that, then we will be replicating these same systems. So um, Lord has this lovely quote in this essay of, instead, what we must do is divide and conquer must become define and empower. So instead of dividing us along the lines of our differences, we should see our differences, define them, celebrate them, and embrace them as the resources that can be leveraged for so much more beyond the status quo of what we have been given in this master's house in which we find ourselves. So that's a very, very um, quick summary of what this essay is doing. But one piece that I love about all of this is that... um, Lord's essay has language in it that indicates very clearly that the future we go to is one that is not yet known or determined. It's one that we have to create and imagine on our own. The force of creativity and generation is something that is like, uh, as Lord says, um, the interdependency of different strengths acknowledged and equal instead of set against each other and in competition with one another. Only within that interdependency of different strengths, acknowledged and equal, can the power to seek new ways to actively be in the world generate, as well as the courage and sustenance to act where there are no charters. Um, And then Lord goes on to say, within the interdependence of mutual, non-dominant differences lies that security which enables us to descend into the chaos of knowledge and return with true visions of our future, along with the concomitant power to affect those changes, which can bring that future into being. Difference is that raw and powerful connection from which our personal power is forged. So there's that sense of um, bringing into a new future that we have the capacity to envision because we are now tapped into the creative resources of our differences rather than ignoring them or or being afraid of them or dividing ourselves along those lines. The power of Audre Lorde's piece, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, it lives on. And this is something that I think a lot of people can like agree to.
But what may, but what you may not know is that Lord's project is also in harmony with an existential project. And this is so obvious because the essay actually ends um, with a quote from Simone de Beauvoir and the Ethics of Ambiguity. So Audre Lorde says, it is in the knowledge of our genuine conditions of our lives that we must draw strength to live and our reasons for acting. That is a line out of the Ethics of Ambiguity. So it's out of this knowledge of the genuine conditions of our lives in which our freedoms are ambiguous and tied up and connected with one another, and they are the very mechanisms through which we oppress one another. But when we understand that it is our freedom that does that, then we can draw strength to live and find some guidance for our reasons for acting in the world, which, if you read The Ethics of Ambiguity, you would know becomes the reason for acting in the world is freedom for the sake of more freedom. I'm going to wrap up this episode with a thought that crossed my mind the other night about how in an emergency situation, like, I don't know, getting caught in a really bad accident or like a building collapses, I'd be pretty fucking useless because I don't know first aid. So I might panic or maybe I'd try to do something totally meaningless because I wanted to feel like I was helping, like maybe go brush aside a piece of the building or post a black square on Instagram or something like that. But since I'm in the utterly disappointing position of not knowing how to actually help other people yet, one thing I could do is just stay out of the way, move aside. There's probably some German word to describe the feeling someone gets when they have to maneuver around a bumbling idiot who won't get out of the way when all that they're trying to do is save someone. But if it's one of those big emergencies where everyone is calling for help and I am not fully incapacitated from suffering my own personal injuries, then probably the best thing I can do is take direction from those who have a fucking clue, or better yet, those who already have years of training as EMTs. So to keep with this metaphor, because I do love an extended metaphor, Let's also imagine that these EMTs were actually also at the center of the accident. They suffered the most injuries and are currently bleeding out. They live in that building. And in the midst of such trauma and shock, while experiencing their own pain and human emotions to devastating events, because of my ineptitude, they had to be the ones to keep it together, figure out how to respond and organize and order my dumbass around. If I manage to do my part in this moment to listen and take direction, this tiny little thing that I can do right now is strictly damage control. It's not enough, and it's certainly not fair, particularly if, at the end, after the dust settles, and I, relatively unscathed, walk away and leave them to rebuild all on their own. A key piece of this metaphor, which I hope is not lost on you, is that the people who are hurt and suffer the most are the ones who are not only forced to show up and lead, to be strong and strategic in the midst of their own pain, but they also are left to support themselves because the rest of us don't even know how to offer proper care and support. Never mind the fact that we were probably the ones who caused the accident or those of us were the ones who helped build the building that was made to collapse. So that metaphor became pretty elaborate, but here's the deal. To all of us just standing around feeling like a bunch of dumbasses as the world rises up in civil unrest, it's clear we've got a lot of catching up to do. And there's more tough news. There's no time to waste. This is why you have a sense of urgency. So embrace it. And no that this intensity is going to shift. It will. How we feel about the things that brought hundreds of thousands of people into the streets to protest over the past several weeks will change. For many people, that rage, that frustration, it may not transform 
because Black people are suddenly no longer being killed or Native people and people of color are no longer suffering from generations of violence and domination. It may just subside once people go back to work. Or they just get tired. But beware of cynicism and hopelessness, especially because it is very likely that there will continue to be backlash. With our attention focused on injustice, we will begin to see even more clearly instances of violence. We will have to bear witness, and the work we have to do won't go away. So we need people to stay engaged. As the weeks go on, this will be a test of commitment. It will become very clear who among us have felt everything deeply enough to feel like change within us has been initiated. We are not yet transformed. At best, let's be honest. This moment has been a heartbreaking invitation for many to participate in our collective transformation. Hopefully, enough of us will have built up sufficient emotional and political muscle memory to continue investing in communities of color, holding our leaders and institutions accountable, pushing ourselves and others to not become complacent and soothed by the status quo and go back to normal. I hope we have enough muscle memory to work together, to support each other, to keep pushing one another, to know better and do better. I just don't want us to delude ourselves. As time goes on, this energy will shift. That's not necessarily a bad thing. To be sustainable, things will have to shift. This is a moment in a movement, and it's what happens next that really matters. So prepare yourself now. This energy you've been feeling, rage, anger, pain, confusion, conviction, a desire for something different, can and could change to look like a lot of things moving forward. How will it look on the path ahead? How should it look? Because things will inevitably change and shift, this is the precise reason why we must be able to answer the question, why? Of course there's more. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't. Thank you for listening. To learn more about my work, check out my website at coreywong.com. If you want to support this project, Meta Level Love, share it with your friends and encourage them to subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.